Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello, and welcome to the year 2020. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and this week on Babbage, our weekly show on science and technology, we are going to take a look at an icon of both science and music, and how one individual made an extraordinary contribution to culture, music, and yes, even spycraft. 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of many things. For science fiction aficionados, there are a number of important anniversaries. It is the 100th anniversary of the birth of the sci-fi authors Ray Bradbury and on the 2nd of January, Isaac Asimov. It's the 100th anniversary of the birth of the Star Trek actor James Doohan, better known as Scotty, and the Doctor Who actor Patrick Troughton, who's better known as the Second Doctor. However, the year 2020 also marks the 100th anniversary of the birth of something even closer to my heart, something that shares a sci-fi connection with these people. It is a fairly simple piece of electronics. In fact, it is a musical instrument. The music imagination that you have to have before you start playing... Every instrument is different, and also every player, they'll also all cause an instrument to behave differently. You can produce this siren by pushing your hand forward from your shoulder towards the antenna and pulling it back. Yes, I am talking about the theremin. With its eerie whine and vibrato wail, the theremin for many people is the distinctive soundscape of cheesy 1950s sci-fi movies. But there is much more to it than that. And here, I need to relate a personal story. It is a love story. And it takes place in the fitting city of Paris. In the early 1990s, a dashing young journalist realizes that his life is incomplete. He, that would be me, realizes that the object of his desire is the theremin. But it's not quite so simple. In Paris in the 1990s, the only way to get a theremin is to assemble one from a mail order kit. But I am not deterred. I can pay the hundreds of dollars. I can learn to solder electrical wiring. After all, I am committed. But then I read the fine print. The seller is not responsible if I electrocute myself or burn down the building. And I realize that perhaps it's not such a good idea to build a theremin. So instead, I admired it from afar, listening to the classical stylings of Clara Rockmore, 
watching the flamboyant Jimmy Page using one on stage. And falling in love to the sounds of the Beach Boys on the song Good Vibrations. Which was actually performed with a tanner, which is a variant of the theremin. And I've been a theremin lover from afar until now. The instrument is named after its inventor, Lev Sergeyevich Terman, also known as Leon Theremin. And in many ways, the flamboyant, experimental sound reflects the life that Terman himself lived. Well, there are very few people, I think, who live long enough to see cataclysmic changes in world history, and not just to witness them up close, but actually to participate in them. Someone who knows all about Theremin's life and inventions is the American composer, historian, and author Albert Glinsky. He wrote the biography, Theremin, Ether Music and Espionage. Theremin was born into Tsarist Russia, into a relatively wealthy family. Then he was thrust into World War I as a soldier and somebody who also did radio work. Then after World War I came the Russian Revolution, and he was caught up in that personally. And then the Russian Civil War, where he was actually blowing up radio towers and fleeing. And then he came to America just during the 10 years, essentially, of the Great Depression and lived through that and saw that from an American perspective. Then he left and went back to Russia just in time for World War II and worked through that and was also, of course, imprisoned in gulags there and saw that up close. Then he became part of the Cold War and did a lot of secret work for the Russian government. And then eventually he emerged into perestroika and saw that. And I always like to say that he joined the Communist Party himself after perestroika. And one of his friends said to him, why would you do that? Everybody else is running the other way. And his answer, I always love this, he said, I promised it to Lenin. (laughs) Can you tell us the history of how Theremin invented the instrument? Theremin came upon this principle sort of through the back door in some ways. He was working in a laboratory in Russia after the revolution, and he was a young, newly minted communist scientist. He had no choice, really, because he was Russian. And he was working in a laboratory with actually a gas meter, and it was something to measure the relative density of gases, of all things. And it had a little meter, analog meter, that would flick back and forth. And he decided just on a lark one day to hook up to this something that had a kind of a whistling tone so that not only would you visually see on a meter the change in the density of gases under different conditions, but you would also hear the pitch go higher or lower depending on the density. But then he found that when he put his hand near this device, his hand actually affected 
what was going on with the meter. It kind of interfered with the reading, and he could make that whistling tone go higher or lower depending on how close his hand was to the device. So this was the idea of hand capacitance, which is the whole basis for the theorem and the idea that we all have electrical fields around our body. So he discovered this principle, and his lab supervisor came running over, and he started playing melodies on this because he was also a cellist. He studied a cello on the college level, and he started playing melodies, and they said, you should make this into an instrument. Albert also told me that a remarkable theremin player called Lydia Kavanagh, a relative of Leon Theremin, lived here in Britain in a small town in Oxfordshire. So there was no question I had to speak to her. Hello, yes. I'm Kenneth Kuke, Lydia Kavina. Yes. Yes, hi. Yes. It's Hello. so nice to meet you. Hi. Yeah. Okay. Nice meeting you. Thank you. Thank you. There is one other thing about Lydia. She was also the last person to be taught the instrument by Leon Theremin himself. I probably don't remember the first meeting because obviously as a relative he did visit at our house from time to time and probably uh, can recall more or less the first meeting with the instrument theremin because it was the small theremin that Theremin built with transistors and worked with batteries that he brought in our house to show us, me and my sister, to find out whether we would be interested and and how we would try to play it. I mean, at that time I was probably nine years old. We had quite a big apartment. We lived my parents, my sister, my grandfather, who was the cousin of Left Terman, and the living room was quite big. (laughs) It was about 18 quadrat meter. And that was the room where all our celebrations, uh, we, we collected uh, relatives uh, around the big table. And we had the piano there. The ceremony was in the, in the corner and normally we would uh, have to move it in the middle of the room to play it and then put back in the corner. So did you all gather around the theremin in the living room for a sing-along? <laughs> you know, you have to take space around the theremin because if there are more people, they all interact the field and they would um, make it difficult to control the sound. <laughs> so I have to ask you this question. How does the theremin work? It works with electromagnetic field. We interact with the field, we change the capacity around the antenna. Uh, So the antenna is attached to the uh, capacitor of the oscillator. The sound itself is created by the oscillators. Actually, it is the heterodyne metals that creates the sound. It is the disturbance sound between two high-frequency oscillators. One oscillator works stable and another one is attached to the antenna and gets this change in its pitch. So high-frequency oscillators are not to hear themselves, but their difference is something that we can hear. Uh, I have got the loop antenna for, for the volume, and when I move my hand away, the volume increase. And when I put it back, to the antenna, it gets soft. And uh, with my right hand, I change the pitch. If I go closer to the antenna, I change the pitch higher. And back from the antenna, it gets lower. So we have to move our hand 
near antenna, near the instrument. It's not just the movement of the hand, it's, it's movement of everything. All your body is involved in this field. So you become part of the instrument. You are in the field. You are part of the captor. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The theremin is undergoing a revolution as a new generation of players take up the instrument. Since they are easier to find today and less expensive compared to my pathetic and lonely theremin-less days in Paris. And of course, there is a cornucopia of resources online to learn how to play it. I invited one of the new great players to The Economist studio to explain his love of the instrument and its future. Charlie Draper is a thereminist in London whose performances have taken him around the world. When I was growing up, I played, I played the piano and I wanted to learn a second instrument. And I was very fortunate that when I was at school, one of my music teachers had been obsessed with 1980s synth pop. And he wanted to teach us about the art of noise and uh, the Fairlight and other, and other sort of early electronic musical instruments. And in order to get there, he started at the very beginning, at the dawn of electronic music, with the theremin, the on Martineau, and these other amazing early valve-operated instruments. He mentioned that there was an early electronic musical instrument that you controlled without touching it. And that lodged in my mind as something really unusual that I wanted to explore later. And so a few years later, when I decided to pick up a second instrument, I was investigating and I found a recording on the internet of the German thereminist Carolina Eich playing a piece on the theremin. And that there, were, there were no visuals, it was just the audio. But it sounded so much like a human voice, like, like a soprano being controlled without the need to take breath. You could get louder and quieter just with the movement of a hand. So for me, it was just that moment of hearing this incredible sound and thinking, yeah, this is the instrument that I really want to learn to play. I think it's fair to say that through most of its history, the theremin has been employed as an orchestral special effect. There was a period in the 1920s and 30s, just after the invention of the instrument, when it was being touted, especially by the Radio Corporation of America in the United States, where it was being positioned as a classical instrument. So the expectation was that people would have a theremin in their home next to their piano, that people would learn it as they do a, a clarinet or some other instrument. And along with that, uh, a ream of different compositions were produced for theremin and orchestra, where the theremin takes the role of a, of a solo instrument. Now, I love this vision. What happened? There were several difficulties that the Radio Corporation of America experienced in trying to market the theremin as a consumer or professional-grade instrument. First of all, the instrument was very difficult to play, so there were no teachers. The method of playing it was not obvious. You couldn't just go straight from a violin or a piano to playing it like you could with, say, a Hammond organ or some other early electronic musical instrument. And 
what ended up happening was that musicians returned the instrument furiously, realizing that the the advertising material was just completely wrong, basically. So it must break your heart when so much of the theremin composition today is simply cheesy sci-fi. I suppose we have to thank uh, science fiction, horror movies, psychological thrillers for for having given the theremin a lot of its repertoire. Like the, this, <laughs> the composer, composer of Miklos Rocha's statue, who's the, the chap who wrote the music for Spellbound, the 1945 Hitchcock film. One of the finest pieces of a film score written in the, in the 40s and 50s uses a theremin still being played today by concert orchestras. Theremin's life has always fascinated me. He's not only famous for using science for advancing music, he went on to make advances in spying technologies. Here's Albert Glinsky again. His spy work for the Russians was very high-tech and way ahead of its time. The two most famous devices that he invented, both of them in the 1940s, were used against Americans and also against uh, other European embassies. Specifically, there's the great seal bug, which was an antenna that was hidden inside of a wooden carving of the great seal of the United States and presented by Soviet pioneers or Soviet Boy Scouts, we would call them, with great fanfare on July 4th, 1945, to Avril Harriman, who was the American ambassador to Moscow at that point, and he hung it with great fanfare behind his desk because it had been through all sorts of sweepers. And, and so they put it on the wall, but hidden inside was this insidious device and it was attached to an antenna and the eagle's beak in the wooden carving had two little holes. And so anyone speaking in the room, their voice would go through and be picked up by the antenna and go into the little resonant cavity. But the half of the device that wasn't present in the room was present a few doors down, down the street, and that was the receiving device. And it was a microwave device that could be turned on at will. There were no batteries, no electricity in the seal itself. So they simply turned on the microwave device and they could beam out than the conversations in the room. And that went on for seven years in the American ambassador's residence during the Cold War and very sensitive talks. The other device was something called Buran, which translates as snowstorm. And it was an infrared light device that would actually beam light toward window glass of various embassies. And Theremin figured out that if you focused this infrared beam on certain areas of window glass, you would actually pick up the vibrations of speech going on inside these very sensitive rooms in these consulates. So for, for that, he received a Stalin prize from Stalin himself. So those were two of his very clever and wonderful bugging devices. Although he was a maker of spy equipment, it was the relationship between music and the body that was really Leon Theremin's passion. The Theremin really is the beginning of history in terms of electronic music, and it's really interesting to see that the human body was a key part of that concept. That's Atu Tanaka. He's a professor of media computing at Goldsmiths College, University of London. 
I have a PhD in computer music from Stanford University, so I've always been putting together computing technologies with music. So I'm a composer and a performer, as well as being a professor. So my research is concerned with human interaction and sound. This means I'm interested in ways to interface with the body, and as a musician and composer, how to create new synthesizer sounds with that, and perform turning the body itself into a musical instrument, which I think is quite close to Theremin's original vision. The technologies that I use are picking up physiological signals directly from the nervous system of the body to do the same thing. This allows us to be expressive musically and gives us a direct connection between musical intention in our creativity and the sound that comes out. The next steps, I think, are to analyze and to understand the complexity of human musical gesture. And for this, machine learning technologies are the thing that I'm working on. Professor Tanaka explained how exactly it works. Okay, so the signal that I'm working with from the body is called the electromyogram. These are the electrical impulses made by the central nervous system in creating muscle contraction. We've created here in the lab a circuit board. It's a bit like medical technology, where you're able to stick wet gel electrodes, like electrocardiogram electrodes, on the arm muscles. And in fact, the heart is a muscle. And here, instead of amplifying the heartbeat, we're amplifying muscle tension in the forearm. These electrodes, snap electrodes, are plugged into our circuit board that digitize the electromyogram signal and send it by Bluetooth to the computer. Once we get this information in the computer, it's data that can be processed in any way that we would. It's very audio-like, but non-musical signal to which we do feature extraction and signal processing and machine learning to map to musical parameters. So a hundred years later, and people are still taking on the concepts developed by Leon Theremin. He was groundbreaking in inventing the first purely electronic instrument, and if anything, it was an invention that just came too soon. Here's Lydia Kavanagh again. Imagine this is the very beginning of the 20th century. The electricity is just produced to the world. It just discovered, it just starts working. And how do you work with the electricity? Quite mechanical way, with huge regulators, with huge knobs. So it is very mechanical way of thinking. The ceremony is something so ethereal, it is quite difficult to understand why and what you can do with this. So it is just out of that world. And the end of the 20th century, when we start to open the door just by movement, we start to use the joystick or the mouse, you know, it's something that you cannot say exactly how many centimeters you are moving. You, you are doing it more by intuition. And today, the touchpad is something that you really uh, slide and stop by intuition. Yeah, When you find the, the information, you stop. You don't count how many times you slide, how many millimeters between one or another information, whatever. So you do it in more human way, by movement, by free movement. This happened just, just in the recent 2025, whatever, years. I think the theremin has a pretty exciting future ahead of it, largely because the number of players is increasing all the time. 
There are really, really fantastic videos being released all the time. There are new compositions being written by prominent composers. There are new compositions being written by, by classical composers. The repertoire is increasing. As the number of players increases, the chance for there to be new, really good players increases. Scientists and musicians are still influenced by Lev Sergeyevich Terman, and it looks like the next 100 years will be the place for science and music to truly come together. As anniversaries go, this is one where it looks like the future is finally catching up with the past. Thanks for listening to Babbage. And as we listen to the Radio Science Orchestra featuring Charlie Draper, why not make 2020 the year when you subscribe to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radiooffer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.